God bless you. Let's begin. We are in the book of Romans, so if you want to turn to Romans with me, as we are making our way through this, this what I call this wonderful book of revival, and it's an amazing, amazing document. As I've said over and over again, it's the greatest document, I believe, that is within the greatest document, and uh, of course, the Word of God. Um, but it does, it just stirs hearts, and uh, Paul makes this wonderful journey. We know we love Romans chapter 8. We know we, we want to be in chapter 8. And, uh, but he makes this wonderful journey, bringing mankind from that state, that fallen state, and, and identifying mankind's greatest problem, then moves us forward to understand what righteousness is really all about and how righteousness is found. And, uh, and chapter 6 leads us into that area where you know now we understand this righteousness that comes in Christ and Christ alone, through faith in Christ and Christ alone. We understand this righteousness avails to us and so there begins to understand talk about the responsibility of the child of God and that that we shouldn't con- and now being now being sanctified now being set apart now being washed in the blood of Christ now being a whole a righteous child of God do we continue in sin God forbid he says in that sixth chapter and begins to bring home the responsibility of the child of God how we had to walk in victory not simply just to continue as we were there's a process taking place and it's a wonderful process of revival within within uh, within the heart of a person and when we get to chapter 7 one of the most controversial controversial not maybe not controversial but one of the most um, discussed chapters you might say Um, Paul is talking about this internal struggle that goes on within some say the believer some say it's a pre-Paul experience Uh, I have a strong leaning um, but that'll become self-evident as we go through it but I won't say any more you're familiar with Romans chapter 7 yes we are Um, we're picking up in about verse 14 this morning but let me ask you a question before we get there Um, an epoch do you know what an epoch is an epoch is the beginning of something new. It's a, a new, it's a distinct period, something brand new. I remember, here's an example, um, not a good example, but it's my example. Who, I remember when records, remember those round black things? When records were replaced by CDs. Um, now you can reveal yourself now, you can expose yourself. Uh, who remembers records? Yes, good people. My people. Um, <laughs> but it happened so suddenly, didn't it? Do you remember? You know, it happened so very, very suddenly. One moment we were talking about this new technology that was coming. We were talking about these new indestructible, and that was a lie, wasn't it? These new indestructible disc CDs that are going to be the new way now. This is how we're going to, going to um, listen to our music now. And one day, this is what it was like. Literally, it was like this. One day, I walked into the record store, but it wasn't a record store anymore. Do you remember that? They were simply gone, and overnight, they were gone, and the CDs were in their place. It was a new epoch. That's what it is. Now, the thing is, everything changed. I'm still talking about records now. Everything changed but I still had all these records in my house. I still had this vinyl, you know, and I had this fine Marantz record player. It was beautiful. 
My son's now got it. And there was something in me that did not want to yield to this new technology. You know, because after all, I'm a vinyl man, right? Brothers and sisters, I'm a vinyl man, you know. I knew, here's the thing, I knew and I had experienced the new sound of the CD. I knew it was, I knew it was clearer, I knew it was purer, I knew it was superior. I knew that. And even though, even though I understood it was a better sound, I, I kept playing my scratchy old records. You know? I kept playing my scratchy old records. And for a good many years, I might say, for a good many years, I lived in the overlap between two different epochs, is what I did. You're probably wondering, what's this got to do with anything, right? It's one of those mornings, I know. But Romans chapter 7, we see in this what I believe is an autobiographical account of the Apostle Paul's experiences, we see a similar thing. We see a man, Paul, who is living in the overlap, let me say it again, between two different epochs, that being life under the law and life in the Spirit. In the first half of Romans chapter 7, Paul explains what the law is supposed to do. That's the previous epoch, if I can keep using that word. Paul reminds us in the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 7 that the law, the Ten Commandments, the laws of God are holy, they are just, and he says they are good. He said, don't you, don't you stop and think for a minute There's nothing, that they are not good. No, he says they are good, but they were never intended to justify a person before God. They were never intended to make us just, to make us righteous no, they were there to expose the reality of who we really were. They were to show us that God is holy, that God is just, that God is righteous, but at the same time to expose who we are and that we are not holy, that we weren't, are not perfect, and that most importantly, the law is there. Galatians tells us, you know the verses, don't they? Is a schoolmaster. To, to lead us to Christ. The law ultimately there is to show us that we desperately are in need of a saviour. Desperately in need of a saviour. In fact, the law, Paul says, is not only there to reveal our sinfulness, but he also says it's there to provoke us. He says it's there to provoke the carnal mind, in fact, to sin, to realise the futility of trying to live righteous ourselves. Think about it. If that offends you, think about it. What goes on inside you when someone tells you you can't do that? Be honest. When the sign says don't walk on the lawn, what wants to go on inside your brain or what goes on inside your brain? Yes, don't touch the paint. What do you want to do? You need to. There's something inside you. See, that when the law comes, when thou shalt not comes, the carnal mind is awakened. And this is what the, old, the law did. It awakens the carnal mind to all sorts of ungodly desires. And we who thought we were in control of that old sinful nature suddenly realize, no, 
We're not in control of anything here. Not in control of anything at all. And very easily a person can find themselves spiraling out of control because the law says you shall not do this. But there is a part of you that says I want to do this. Paul, or when he was Saul in fact, thought he had it all sorted out, didn't he? He thought he, he spoke about this in the chapter. He said he thought he had it all sorted out. He thought that he was in control. But then he saw the law. He said, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't killed, murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not that sort of person. But then what did he say? He said, the law said, thou shalt not, no, covet. All of the, most of the law is all about those outward actions, those things that we should not do. But then the last of the commandments comes to the heart. It talks about what's going on, the inside of a person. And that's what Jesus dealt with on the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about, to realize, to make us realize that our righteousness by itself is no good. No good. He said, you may not have murdered anybody, but if you've got hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart, didn't he? He said, you may not have committed adultery. You may not have gone after someone else's wife physically, but if you desire, you have lusted in your heart, in your heart you've already committed. What was Jesus doing? He's telling us that the law is spiritual. And we can't do it ourselves. That's why he said at the beginning of that whole passage, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll in no wise enter the kingdom of God. What was he saying? He was saying, hey, to them, these people who looked at the, the scribes and the Pharisees who consider themselves perfectly righteous by their, by, their, by their understanding of the law and the keeping of rules, he said, if you can't be more righteous than they are in the keeping of their rules... And for them, there was no one higher. They must have thought in their minds, well, who then can be saved? And then what Jesus did was, he took the view, the focus away from the scribes and the Pharisees. He brought it back to the human heart and he began to close the door. You know what he began to do? He began to close the door on heaven to anybody who's trying to get there by their own efforts. Because he gets to the end of that passage and he says, be therefore now, what? Perfect. No, we can't do that. We can't do that. So Paul here, talking about, in the first verses, describing what the law is intended to do, is now moving into what I have, using this word epoch again, this second epoch, which is of course the victory that we have in the new life that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven our sins, haven't we? Isn't that glorious? We've been forgiven our sins. We are now a part of the family of God and we have the certain hope of heaven. We have God's assurance and so here's the question, given that there are these two epochs, here is the question. If we are born again by the Spirit of God, who now dwells within us, why do we fall so readily? And I guess I'm talking to everybody here. Why do we fall so readily to that sinful nature? Why can I say it to you by using my... Example, are we still playing the scratchy old records 
Why, when available to us, is the beauty and the purity and the clarity that comes from relationship with the Son of God? Why? That's the question. I mean, we've all experienced it, haven't we? We've all experienced the wonderful joy of walking in the Spirit. We know exactly what it is, this absolute satisfaction and the wonderful peace of God that is present when we are walking in righteousness and experiencing His presence with us. So can I ask again, why the scratchy old records? What I'm asking is, why the sin? Why do we continue? Well, I know my analogy fails. I know it fails. But it's what we've been saying. The Christian life, in a sense, lives in two epochs or two worlds simultaneously. We live in this body of flesh, don't we? Flesh and blood. And it's subject to the conditions of mortal life. Wilberforce spoke about this, and he spoke about how we live in this completely inhos, in, can't say the word, inhos, in, inhospitable environment that is not designed or akin towards righteousness and holiness, but everything about this environment that we are in, that this body of flesh is in, is drawing us towards what? Towards unrighteousness, isn't it? It's completely, and it's completely inhospitable. However, spiritually, we have passed from death to life. We are new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. But because there is, in a sense, a dual existence, there's tension. There's tension. Paul talks about it often. He says in Galatians chapter 5, those familiar verses when he says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit. You know it? And the spirit against, and sorry, for the, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two, he says, are contrary one to another so that you watch, you do the things that you do not want to do. That sounds dark, doesn't it? That sounds heavy. That sounds, this is too hard. But there are two things that I must accept a believer that yes this is the present and this is the present and real experience of the Christian but it's not meant to be the normal experience it's not meant to be the normal everyday experience for the child of God we are not meant to be we read it in chapter 6 remember we are not meant to be slaves what unto sin but slaves unto righteousness and we must not this is what I want to say to you we must not as struggling believers simply take refuge in these verses and go well if Paul had this struggle who am I you know we don't take refuge in these verses to the sense that we go oh well mediocrity will be okay for me No, 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 no. We must remind ourselves that the same man 
Again, the Apostle Paul that experienced this frustration also repeatedly reminds us as believers that the Christian life is a race that is to be run, a race that is to be won, a battle that is to be fought, a battle that is to have victory. And Paul said he had to crucify his flesh. He said he had to have the victory over his tongue. He had to put to death his prideful desires, his judgmental attitudes, his resentment, his self-exaltation. He had to put it all to death himself. So too must we. Christian, so too must we. You see, Paul, who said the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we end up doing the things that we don't want to do. Paul, who said that, you've got to realize what he said before he said that. Before he said that, you walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not. What? You will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We have a choice, don't we? We have a choice. Yes, Paul is declaring, great word. Paul is declaring the struggle he had with the flesh And it was a battle. It was a battle. But the victory came. Don't you want to get to the end of this chapter? Don't you want to get to that victorious cry? That's where we're going, you know. This passage of confession is what it is. An inability to to stand in some instances is leading to the praise and the triumph of great joy. That every Christian should have. For, the, for this inability to stand uh, last only as long as I try and live by. Remember the first half of this chapter? This inability only stands as long as I try and live by. If I can do it. If I can be good enough. If I can work it out. If I can become someone that is acceptable to God. What is that? That's law. That's rules. You see, this passage is not there to encourage us to get there ourselves. At the same time, it's not there for us to justify our failures. But again, it is to lead us towards victory. Would you read verse 14 with me? I just realized we haven't read anything. Sorry about that. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that do not practice. But what I hate, he says, that I do. What did he say? He said, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. And so being spiritual, the law touches touches the inner man, the spiritual part of us. And when we're walking in the spirit and we realize great victory, we know that's true, don't we? We know that's true. But Paul says, I am carnal, I'm sold under sin. And so when I'm not walking in the spirit, remember we have a choice in this. And so when I'm not walking in the spirit... And here, hey, and by the way, I'm not here talking about, nor do I believe the Apostle Paul is here talking about willfully giving oneself over to sinful lifestyle. He's not talking to someone about, ah, well, I'll just live my own way. I'm saved by grace. What's the the point in fighting this whole nature? No, 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 that's not what he's saying. 
But when a Christian, and I'll say it again, who falls into the trap of trying to live by his own willpower, his own determination, tries to do what is right in order to please God, again, to make himself someone that is acceptable to God, that's living under law, that's what that is, it's a mentality that says, I can do the things God accept me. That is not spirituality. That's not spirituality. That is law, that it is carnality. That's what Paul is talking about. And living the Christian life with that approach, it's only going to lead to frustration. It's only going to lead to defeat. Because what does law do, remember? What does it do? It activates and it exposes sin to remind us that we need a saviour. The reason I stand is because someone else told me to sit. That's law. That's law. And so Paul begins to pour out his frustration here. He's going, I don't understand what I want to do. I don't. And what I hate, I do. So there's this struggle. Not someone who's just relinquishing themselves to an old life, no. So he says in verse 16, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So the law's good, right? But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What he's saying, or it is this, it's not that I desire to do wrong. Now who can, who can, who, 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 what's the word? Who here, (laughs) I can't find the word. And I wasn't out till five o'clock in the morning digging cars out of ditches. Um, Identify, thank you so much. Who here can identify with that? It's not that desire to do wrong, but it's a sinful nature within me that I have. That's what he's saying here. For I know, look at verse 18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. It's good to know that, right? Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. So that's my desire to do good. But how to perform what is good, I do not find within me, myself, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now I do what I will not, excuse me, now I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but is sin that dwells in me. Is this us this morning? It is. It's every one of us. The will to do what is good is not the problem, Christian. Because I know none of you get up in the morning, you blood-washed sons and daughters of the Most High God. I I know none of you get up in the morning and head out into the day and say, hey, I'm just going to do everything that God doesn't want me to do. I know none of us do that. All of us rise in the morning and we say, Lord, I just want to please you. 
Lord, I just want to follow you. I just want to be where you are. Lord, be my strength. And we have that prayer, don't we? You know. But Paul explains, hey, that's not the problem. The will to do is not the problem. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So there is I who wants to do what God wants, and then there is sin that dwells within me. He's talking about the sin nature. If you have given your life to Christ, then you have a redeemed spirit. Again, you are a son or a daughter of God, and this spirit only desires to please God. It never desires to seek that which God prohibits. Again, none of us get up to start the day like that. But then there is this sin nature in which nothing, what did he say? Nothing good dwells. Jesus often spoke about this, and I've referred to it already, I know, with only one instruction for it, this nature. And you know what the instruction for it is? It's kill it. Again, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand offends you, what did he say? Cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Pluck it out. Now, of course, Jesus is not literally saying perform surgery on yourself. That's not what he's saying. But rather, Jesus uses this very graphic and offensive picture. He wants you to see that. You know, when you allow your eye to go wandering in places that it shouldn't go, he wants you to visualize the appropriate action to that in a spiritual sense. He wants you to see it as ugly and as vile as it possibly is. So he wants you to imagine, this is what I need to do. I need to get a fork. Can you imagine that? Get a fork and ram it into my eyeball and rip that offensive thing out. He doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to see it like that so you can understand the gravity the gravity of the position we are in. We need to take equally drastic action because we face a serious problem as Christians. We're living in the overlap of two epochs. So when the flesh exalts itself over your desire, and every one of you in this room knows what I'm talking about, when your flesh exalts itself over your desire to be what God wants you to be, then the command of God is simple. You cut it off. You pluck it out. You kill it. You kill it right there and then. God has only one sentence for the flesh, and that is death. He never says, clean it up, does he? He never says, clean it up. He never says, let's reform it. He never says, and this is what's happening in so much of the church today, coexist with it. He never says that. No, he says, kill it. He never says, stand against it. He doesn't even say that. Because our willpower will never be enough for us to stand against that old nature. No. If we do anything less than kill the flesh, that rhymes. If we do anything less than kill the flesh, then sin will win. It'll win. And we will do the evil that we do not want to do. So what does he say in verse 21? He says, I find then a law that evil is present, present within me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Uh, yes, again, I desire 
to please God. I delight in your law. It is good. But I see another law, verse 23, in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So again, Paul brings us to the same place. We have two natures. One delights in the law of God. The other wages war against God's law. And I so often end up asking myself, have you been there? What is the matter with me? I've been walking as a Christian for nearly 30 years. What is the matter with me? Why can't I do what is right? And if this is where we are at, then there is only one cry. Only one cry. It's verse 24. It's where we've been trying to get to all morning. It is so wonderful. There's such a glorious cry. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know that word wretched there, Warren Wisby in his commentary talks about it. He says that word wretched is a descriptive word. What, you know, it's the idea of someone that has ex- exerted all of their energies to try and live the good life, to only discover that they can't do it. Everything that they've got, it's not enough. They can't do it. That's what the wretched stake is. Get to that place, Christian. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to get the victory over this thing. I've tried and I've tried to be able to stand against this thing. I've even tried to live with this thing. I've done everything I possibly can to try and be what God wants me to be, but I can't do it. A wretched man. That's what it is. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. This is where we need to come to. Every single one of us. If I think there is good in me that can solve my sin problem, if I think that my will is strong enough to control evil in my life, then I'm not at this place. This is the place of poverty of spirit that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. This is the place where I come to before God absolutely with nothing to offer Him. You heard me say this so many times where I come to Him where I've absolutely and in of myself whereby I can commend myself to God that he should accept me. I've tried it all and nothing I do is good enough. All I know is, this is it, all I know is I can't stand on my own strength. All I know is I've been faking it for way too long. One thing at church, another thing at home. One thing at church, another thing in the workplace. Oh, so many of us. I don't, I'm not saying these words to condemn anybody, but this is the place we've got to come to. As I look at the law of God, all I know is that it condemns me. I know it's spiritual. I know I'm carnal. I know I can't keep it. 
Will somebody please help me? That's it. Will somebody please help me? This is the person who's come to the end of self. And this is the person that's ready for the answer. What is the answer? I thank God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice, please notice this. Paul didn't ask, what must I do? Paul didn't ask, where, what can, where can I go? Paul didn't ask, what can I do? I've already said that, I know. He didn't, what did he do? He didn't ask what, he asked, what did he do? Who? Thank you, Addy. He asked, who? Who will deliver me? Jesus, our, our Lord, Jesus Christ is the one who delivers us. Do we have to go on forever as Christians living, struggling, fighting, being defeated by our own flesh? The answer is no. As I said, that is an experience for all believers, but it's not meant to be the norm. It's not meant to be the norm. Chapter 8 is coming. Isn't that glorious? Hopefully we'll get there next week. The answer is no, and I am done this morning. I don't have to let the power of my flesh defeat me. I'm a child of God. Are you a child of God? Are you forgiven of your sin? You're, you're forgiven of your sin. Did you read the book of Ephesians? Did you go in the first three chapters and see that where you are seated right now? Not in this room. No, you are seated in heavenly places. This is incredible assurance that God has brought to you. You are a child of the living God. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are on your way to glory. And he's given you everything in life that pertains to life and godliness. Isn't that what he's given you? Everything. No, we walk in the liberating work of the Holy Spirit. That's what this book is all about. It's about reviving our hearts. It's about setting us free to be all that Christ wants us to be. If we surrender to him. Here's the thing, people. I know I said I'm finished. But here's the thing. You are going to wake up every single day with your bad self. You know that? You're going to wake up every single day with your ugly self. Can I say that? You're going to wake up every single day with your struggling, bad, ugly self. Can I say that? I did. You are going to wake up like that every single day so you get your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and stop looking at yourself. That's where the victory is. What are you called to be? A follower. A follower of Christ. What does a follower of Christ do? Follow him. Look, uh, put him out front. He's in front of you. Watch where he walks. Put your feet in the same place. See where he lays his hands. Put your hands nowhere else. Hear the words that he says. Obey them. Follow him. His glorious victory. His glorious victory. It's resurrection life. It's what it's all about. It was making this what's I'm done. <laughs> God bless you. Let's pray, shall we? I just, uh, Father, we just thank you and we just praise you.
for your goodness to us. We just want to thank you and praise you that your grace is sufficient. We want to thank you and praise you that you have promised our every